And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome, everybody, to Soccer 101. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and this week, boy, oh boy, it is a topic. A word that looms large in football history and not in a good way. Hooliganism. You hear it uh, in terms of the bad old days. There are plenty of stories of it rearing its ugly head in the 1970s and 1980s, but certainly recently and still today. Uh, be it club or international, hooligan groups maintain a presence in global soccer. But how did it first come to be? Why does it remain? Where is it most prominent? Those questions and many more answered uh, here with me to do so uh, is a man who, in honor of today's topic, is recording. Let me check. Yeah. Shirtless uh, with a Union (laughs) Jack tattooed on the side of his head and an open can of lager. It's Graham Ruffin. Hello, Graham. Hello, Taylor. Yeah, it was either that or my balaclava and my finest Stone Island <laughs> yes, yes. attire. I'm ready to go. Let's drive to Millwall. That's what we're doing, right? If you exactly well, well said with Millwall. If you showed up like fully face covered, I'm not sure how I would have responded to that when you came, <laughs> when, when the video first appeared and you were just yeah full balaclava with a flag behind you. I might have been concerned. This is the real me, Taylor. I've I've <laughs> I've, I've, I've had to oppress it for too long, frankly, and so this is my reveal. Yes, mild mannered Graham. Uh, who who loves staying inside and having clean sneakers loves uh, yeah, clean sneakers actually maybe that is a part of being in a football firm it seems uh graham let's talk uh hooligans shall we and let's start with a sort of history of the term itself because to my research there's no specific thing that like definitely is the origin of the term the closest i could find is that there is a and it was like a name of a gang, basically, of like Pat- Patrick Houlihan, I believe it was, or maybe yes. Hooligan. We're not entirely sure. But either way, they caused some unrest. They would get into drunken fights and uh, they became hooligans. So first of all, that, that word hooligan, right? Mm-hmm. So in, in British dialect, that is something that is very much associated with football, but it transcends football, right? It's a word that's yeah. not directly linked to football. Is that is that a British word? Because it kind of sounds yes. like it is. Is that something that uh, kind of outside of American soccer? I know American yeah. soccer fans know what hooliganism is, but is, is that a, a British term you would say? I would say removed from like the American soccer perspective, you hear it as like either like an outdated term i feel like a 1950s like oh you hooligans you rapscallions right there's that one and then i do think it is sort of a general sports fan might know it as a like oh yeah british people drinking and screaming at each other are hooligans like i think i think people know it but i think it's a much less pervasive term than it is certainly in the uk but elsewhere as well yeah so i just wanted to check that hooligan very much seems like a a british word so Mm -hmm. i was just clarifying that the dictionary dictionary definition is quote a violent young troublemaker typically one of a gang a gang and uh, football has a history with violence between fans and that's where the the term hooligan and hooliganism um, comes in that's the the words that are used in in you know in this context but apparently the story that i found this is from a a guardian Mm -hmm. article Apparently, the word comes from a, f- a family of cartoon characters 
who during the 1800s were in an English comic called Nuggets. That was the name of the comic. Uh, of the comic, basically, this was a family of Irish immigrants living in London, and they had thick Irish accents, and they would be violent and buffoonish, and they were contrasted against the proper etiquette of the English. Of course, Ryan definitely would have bought this comic. I reckon he actually has a few com- uh, copies hanging around yeah. his house of, of of Nuggets. But basically, that was the. The the joke, not a very good joke, and I think it, the, I saw some links to the, the Irish name, which is what you were talking about, Taylor, mm. um, like O'Hulahan or Hulahan, yeah. and that becomes Hooligan, so that seemed to be, there are certainly different stories, and, and when you go back to the 1800s, obviously things get a little bit cloudy, but there seems to be a general agreement that it's something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And so you, it then becomes a sort of way English newspapers, to my understanding, will categorize like rowdy troublemakers, rowdy groups of people will be hooligans, acts of violence will be hooliganism. I don't know if it is immediately connected to football. That feels like something that occurs in the like middle to later 20th century. Would you agree with that? Or do you feel like there's a more immediate connection than I'm giving it? So I think that is I think that is broadly fair in terms of connecting that word hooligan and hooliganism to football. In terms of the violence we would now consider mm-hmm. hooliganism, that goes a long way back in soccer, as far back as like seven centuries ago. So in 1314, for example, Edward II banned football in England because the matches between rival villages would end in violence, and he thought it would it would it would lead to like wider civil unrest. Then you have a match in 1885 between Preston North End and Aston Villa. That's considered a big moment in like football violence history, if there is such a book. Um, but there was violence between the fans and uh, between the two sets of fans. And from what I could tell, Villa fans pretty much battered the Preston players and fans, like really beat them up. A lot of them it kind of ended up in hospital. In 1905, um, Preston come up a, a lot for some reason in the early history of football violence and football hooliganism, but several Preston supporters were, were tried for hooliganism, including a, quote, drunken, disorderly 70-year-old woman following a match. So that's quite an image there. In 1909, you had the riot, a riotous Scottish Cup final between Celtic and Rangers at, at, at Hamden. And then you get into the 1950s, where, which is what the kind of period you were talking about, Taylor. You have a real wave of hooliganism in the 50s when um, Liverpool and Everton fans established this kind of weird trend of wrecking trains on the way to to games and Everton fans in particular had a bit of a reputation around this time and there was a barrier behind the goals at Goodison Park to stop things being thrown onto the pitch the way the team's playing this season and in recent seasons maybe they should uh, get that barrier back up at Goodison Park Uh, and then once you get into the 1960s hooliganism is established as as a part of British and English football in particular obviously you have other incidents around the world. But for this period, I think it's most pertinent to look at British mm-hmm. and English football and you have an average of 25 hooligan incidents every year around this period. And, and one thing uh, I read w- that was really interesting to me was how it, it, it sort of, you see that rise in the 1960s, 70s, and then into the 80s. Uh, and, it's, and it's younger people going to games, uh, but then also working class people going to games. But as prices get more, uh, like, stratified essentially and it becomes more expensive to sit in certain areas the cheaper areas end up being the ends behind the goals that you talked about where you end up having to like erect barriers and the like and it and 
to my understanding, it's basically you start getting large groups of youths uh, into these areas, which are the cheaper seats, and then you're and, and then oftentimes that means that they're going unattended, they're going with groups of friends, or like maybe their parents are sitting in the more expensive seats. They might be sitting in the supporters section, as we would now call it. But you then get these kind of like large groups of younger people, uh, generally unattended or maybe unsupervised. And, and I think it starts off, I shouldn't say starts off, but it feels like it's not automatically hooligan fighting. But I, but I think you can see where you're starting to get the sort of grounds for that to develop. Yeah, I think the 70s and 80s is a really interesting um, study, actually, with football hooliganism in, in the UK in particular, mm-hmm. because... I mean, at a base level, football is is a good vehicle for hooliganism because of the way rivalry is at the heart of the whole thing, right? So I mentioned in Edward II times, it was rivalries between villages. Um, So that already gives like a a ground, a basis for violence, I guess. You have fan bases, once football becomes a little bit more mature, you have fan bases that you don't really need to connect many dots for them to become gangs once you add in violence and intimidation. Like a fan base, I, I guess, like as, as in terms of a group of people, like an organized group of people is a non-violent gang in a, in a sense. So I think that's why you have football hooligans and not tennis hooligans or Formula One hooligans. Obviously, there's class things going on there as well, which I'll come on to a little bit later on. You don't have that same culture. But then if you look at the peaks of football hooliganism, and we're starting to enter a new peak now, which is related to social economic things mm-hmm. as, as well. But if you look at the 70s and 80s, that's the Thatcher era in the UK. And that's an era where the working class are, was marginalised, factories and mines were closed up and down the country, which was a, a huge employer around that time. You have real discontent in the working class. And there are strikes and protests and, of course... Football at this point is still very much a a working class pursuit. This is before the Premier League era. So hooliganism, the theory goes, was a release for a lot of people who were struggling in in life at this time. Um, It was also a way to stick the middle finger up at authorities who were seen as oppressive against the working class and certainly with the police being involved in, in, in strikes and, you know, being there to protect the government in a sense. So there's all sorts of things um, folded into that that era in the 70s and 80s as well sporting infrastructure in the uk was crumbling you had slum stadiums which did nothing to, to to protect fans and by the time you get to the 1990s you have the taylor report which demanded every stadium be made all seater mm-hmm. and just for good measure good measure in the 70s and 80s you have the racial element in the uk and of course racism is still uh, depressingly an issue in the UK and certainly since Brexit racial violence has has increased which is very depressing but in the 70s and 80s you had the the national front movement was this this far right party in the UK that gained a lot of prominence and this was just another thing that fueled football hooliganism at at this time so yep. i think when people talk about the the peak years i'm not sure that's the correct term but when football hooliganism was was most common certainly in british football 70s and 80s is definitely where people go to first and there are a lot of different complicated reasons as to why that was the case yes but thankfully uh the national front and far-right organizations that are afraid of immigrants are completely a thing of yesteryear in the uk oh yes of course don't don't fact check that uh graham to, to your to your point about the kind of response to thatcherism and the frustration with society that maybe plays a part in the rise of hooliganism i also think it's a frustration with 
the way in which society functions and the way in which specifically policing functions. So you mentioned the Taylor Taylor report there. That is obviously in response uh, to the uh, the disaster at why am I drawing a blank now? Hillsborough. Thank you, uh, Hillsborough disaster. Uh, and and in that one, obviously the papers blame it on on Liverpool supporters and Liverpool thugs, and and there are many things that are printed that are absolutely not true. But to my understanding, in reading the report, it basically blames it on a lack of of policing and a lack yeah. of 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 well like regulated stewards and sort of clear signage and there are three entrance points into the stands only one of them was made clear so everybody goes down that one so everybody is kind of crushed into this one area and it keeps filling and it keeps filling but that is a lack of effective policing prior to the incident and and, and then afterwards the same goes and and I do think that that is part of it. There's discontent with with the police and with the establishment. But also, if the police aren't doing a good job of regulating things and aren't doing a good job of protecting supporters, which I do think was the case certainly in the 80s, there's going to be a, an or, or organic reaction of, well, someone's got to do something. And so if you are – I mean – we shouldn't keep throwing them under the bus, but I guess I will. If you're going to a Millwall game and and you're in a big group and you guys get set upon by, uh, is it the Bushwhackers? Is that the is that yeah, Millwall? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think Millwall Bushwhackers. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Like if you're set upon by them or you're set upon by another group, like I think there's a natural response of, well, we need to organize and be better prepared so that next time we're not as vulnerable. And I think that quickly leads to more firms and more factions and and a. If if it is a sort of common thing that there might be violence, I think that is a strange world to exist in. I don't exist in a world where, like, I might walk out and, and get hit with a bottle or get punched. But I think if you exist, like, in that world, if that's what your football culture becomes, it's easy to see that as not quite normal, but yeah. a thing that happens when you go to football. And and with the Hillsborough tragedy, um, it is obviously fantastic, that, or not fantastic, but it's good in recent years that the true story has come out about mm-hmm. Hillsborough because hooliganism was such an issue in the 70s and 80s that it was so easy for the authorities, for the police, for the for the government as well to to blame Liverpool fans for, for that tragedy. And of course, that wasn't the, the story at all. So I, I don't believe on a kind of foundational level that fans just become hooligans. Mm-hmm. I think there are, there are reasons for it. And that's not to excuse it because, of course, um, violence in football is not to be welcomed. But yeah, it's very much a product of the times in the 70s and 80s. And even today, with hooliganism and violence in football unfortunately rising, it's once again a, a product mm. of difficult times in the UK. Yeah. You mentioned the Bushwhackers, Taylor. Have you checked some of the other firm names? By the way, the Millwall Bushwhackers, frankly, sounds like a USL team. Like it really that. does. <laughs> it really does. Uh, I know I know the three main ones from that time period. So it's the ICF, it's the Bushwhackers, and it's the Headhunters, right? Yeah, so uh, who's the head? Is that Chelsea? Chelsea. The headhunters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think they were in recruitment. To be honest, that that with that no. name, I think there was another meaning so? to that name. <laughs> uh, the Derby Lunatic Fringe is one of my one of my favorites. The Hull City Psychos, just straight to the point. I, I kind of like their how, how frank they are with that. Again, one, all yeah. of these could be USL names thus yeah. far, <laughs> <laughs> but the Bushwhackers is the best one. That honestly, if I'm a USL franchise yeah. looking for a rebrand, I'm calling my team the Bushwhackers. Is it fair to say, the one I've read less about, is it fair to say that Heisel is more of a hooliganism on display and and necessitates an anti-hooligan response? 
Well, obviously, the the ban of English clubs in Europe comes from the the High Soul Stadium tragedy. So I think that was in 1985, mm-hmm. and from 1985 until 1990, um, all English clubs were banned from from European com- competition. So this was a real defining thing for English football. And the two decades, 70s and 80s, that takes us right up until the start of the Premier League era. That, the hooliganism and the Heysel Stadium tragedy was a defining thing right up until the, the kind of the world we know now. And if, if we if we're to look at some other incidents around that time, I mean, Manchester United were also banned after trouble in a game against Saint Etienne. Leeds were banned from Europe after trouble in uh, European Cup final against Bayern Munich. So... I think with Heisel, yes, there, there's certainly a hooligan element there, but there was hooligan mm-hmm. elements at every single club, and it certainly seemed to be common when um, clubs travelled into Europe and played against European teams in big games. Heard. It just feels like there are a few moments that establish a, oh, we have to do something about this, when, when you start getting those European bans. It does feel like once it becomes... Not again, not an expected or accepted part of football, but a thing that seems to be a an ever present fixture in a negative way. It feels like then there is a response to it uh, of sorts, which means you do get clubs banned. There is more of a reaction, and I think there's even hesitation for clubs to go travel, for supporters to travel, for tournaments to be awarded to host nations. If there's a fear that we might have rampant hooliganism, yeah. I mean, less less concern about that these days with the way tournaments get awarded. But certainly for a period of time, it feels like there was a pretty strong reaction to the per- pervasiveness of the issue. Yeah, I mean, obviously I wasn't alive at that time. I wasn't a football fan at that time. But when you speak to people about that generation of, of English football in particular, I used the word defining earlier, and I think that's that's correct. It was mm-hmm. almost as big a talking point as the football itself. It, you couldn't go to... This is where I think there is a difference to today. And obviously I'm going on um, the the accounts of people who were, were at games in the 70s and 80s. I wasn't at matches at that time. But... Now, while there is certainly a hooligan, hooligan element, you can go to a game in the Premier League or even here in, in, in Scotland and not really feel that element while, you, while you're in the ground. It's around the ground that you might feel kind of the, the, the tension yeah. um, of a hooligan element. Whereas in the 70s and 80s, it was just rolled up right into the middle of football, mm. inside the stadium. You were always aware of that tension. You were always av- aware of that threat of, of, of violence. So I do think there is a bit of a difference between yeah. the two generations there. In uh, Fever Pitch, the is it Nick Hornsby or Nick Hornby? Yeah. Hornby, I think. Hornby. Uh, like he, he has the whole thing about the, like the old Arsenal ground where the stadium would chant, like, clock end, do your job. And that was where the like, hooligans would sit, and that meant go fight the away supporters, basically, if they felt like the away fans were getting too rowdy, too boisterous. The whole stadium would encourage one section to just get into fisticuffs. I feel like, yeah, yeah that, that's a sign that maybe it's present in the stadium, yeah. uh, put it that way. Well, when I went to a Scotland, the Scotland-England game last year, um, the closest example I have of that is this big fat guy came in. I was, I was uh, going to the toilet at halftime. Graham, that's not, the, I, I don't really appreciate when you talk about me like that, but whatever, it's fine. <laughs> Sorry, Taylor. A great big fat person. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> no this guy was like, a, he was in a kilt. I've never seen you wear a kilt, frankly, so I'm pretty sure it wasn't you. I'm wearing so. one every day. You just can't see because you can only oh, right, see okay, my, my torso. Okay. But yeah, okay. Continue on. Sorry, I'll stop distracting so anyway, you. <laughs> he comes into the restroom, mm-hmm. a bunch of Scotland fans, England, are, I think they're 2-0 up at this point, and he goes, right, 
when this game's over, we're going over there and we're going to batter them. Who's coming with me? <laughs> Silence. <laughs> so, the, the hooligan element in that restroom was not particularly strong. And I like to think that that man just went over on his own and uh, perhaps didn't see the end of that game. Uh, a, a question that leads me to a, a, a connected topic. Graham, was that man sober? I did not seem as much, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that that is, I think, one more like aspect that I think is worth mentioning, that um, there is obviously pervasive alcohol use uh, or abuse, depending on your perspective. And I think that you were talking about Everton fans uh, getting a reputation for destroying uh, uh, train cars and carriages. Uh, I think... Like I, I watched a, a BBC video about I think it was like Grim, Grimsby fans uh, going to play somebody maybe Nottingham Forest so this was a few years ago um, and just th- they walk through the train and it's destroyed because there's just like booze everywhere and I think get get a couple or more uh, drinks into you and maybe those inhibitions are lowered and there's just more of a groupthink mentality another one that I think explains especially. As we get into the later stages of the 20th century, I think probably the pervasiveness of what you all would call class A drugs, but like specifically Mm. cocaine. I think when you have more or relatively more widespread usage of amphetamines and stimulants, I think if you've got lowered inhibitions from alcohol combined with amphetamine usage, it's going to create lowered inhibitions, but also a lot more intensity in that sort of let's go over there and batter them disposition shall we say so i do think uh, alcohol and drugs definitely also plays a role in the rise and continued existence of hooliganism yeah certainly in like the last five years i would say cocaine has been a big driving force behind hooliganism in the in the uk certainly I, this wasn't part of my research so i wish mm-hmm. i had some numbers in front of me but i know joey durso at the athletic i think has done some reporting around this and basically um, cocaine usage at football matches in the UK has exploded mm-hmm. in the last few years. And just anecdotally as well, myself, that restroom in Hamden, very, very busy. Not many people at the urinal, everyone waiting for a cubicle, um, if you know what I mean. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and at, at, at Top Golf as well, weirdly, was like that really? at Christmas time. Yeah, busiest bathroom in the world, nobody at the urinal, everyone mm. waiting to get into the cubicle. So it is very much a, like mm-hmm. a, a cultural thing in the UK in the UK at the moment, certainly among young men. Um, and of course, young men um, tend to go to football matches. So yes, absolutely would agree that has been a, a, a factor recently. Uh, in the, the Running Order document, Graham, you've written, when were the peak years for hooliganism in football? Uh, do you feel like we are past the peak years? It does seem like the 70s and 80s were sort of the the bad old days, I guess, to, to put it that way. But it does seem like it's still somewhat rampant these days. But that's me speaking as an American yeah. who's never really dealt with it firsthand. So it's certainly it's, it's prevalent at, at the moment, more prevalent than, look, maybe I was just young and naive, but 10 years ago, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't as aware of the, the, the hooligan element as I am now. As I said earlier, you can kind of trace the peak years of hooliganism and, and it coincides with uh, social and economic factors. And I don't know if you've noticed, Taylor, but the Britain right now, the UK right now, not doing so good. Things so, are 12. Um, 
What? <laughs> what are you talking about? So, so um, yeah, I think that 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 is entirely yeah. fair. I I still wouldn't say these are like the peak years of, of yeah. hooliganism. Again, I wasn't there, but when you speak to people who were who were there, it was just such a defining factor about English and British football at that time. You have so many different incidents, and not just in England, by the way. Maybe the most infamous example of hooliganism in Scottish football was the 1980 Scottish Cup final between Celtic and Rangers, when the two sets of fans invaded the pitch and fought each other on the pitch and the main reason that this is still spoken about to this day is that an alcohol ban was placed on Scottish Mm. football after this and the ban is still in place 44 years later which frankly I think is ridiculous but it does tell you um, something about how great the fear was in in Scottish football about hooliganism at that time of course um, England fans have a bit of a reputation as well and we've seen them cause trouble at tournaments before throwing tra- chairs seems to be a bit of their thing I remember at Euro 2016 there was a brawl between English mm. and Russian fans and Russian fans have a, a reputation even more fearsome than England fans don't, like, don't mesh borderline with borderline state-sponsored Russian uh, hooligans I, I would say yeah but do you remember all the stories about the oh, 2018 yeah. World Cup oh, and yeah. how basically all these hooligans were going to just batter everyone who yep. went to any well, game and then was it the Euros when they really were like they were flown <laughs> over in a plane and they had like GoPros strapped to them the Russian supporters when they were like beating people in Marseille yeah that so that's Euro 2016 yeah. so that's the, that's what I was talking about there I mean, it was, and it was yeah. in Marseille you're right mm-hmm. so the, the English um, hooligans turn up and face some real hooligans from Russia who mm-hmm. are, as you say, uh, strapped with go- GoPros to record their, their beatings, I, I presume. But yeah, there are there are countless examples um, in, in, in the past, but it, it mm-hmm. does feel like... I was going to ask Taylor, sorry if I'm jumping around a bit here, but I wouldn't say hooliganism is particularly common in like American soccer. There have been some incidents. So there was a friendly match between Columbus and West Ham in 2008, mm-hmm. which resulted yeah. in some some fighting between like 100 fans. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that was a West Ham thing, because obviously West Ham as a club clearly not have a reputation. My understanding of that has always been that that was more of a like certain crew supporters understanding the reputation of West Ham supporters and... As you get with international soccer, when Chelsea go to a Hungarian club who are aware of Chelsea's fan reputation, there's a little bit of a like, oh, you want to see what it's like? We'll let you know what it's like. And I think that's where you get those moments. Like like the English and Russians, I think there is a – for the Russians, there was definitely a like, oh, you think you're the the top hooligans in the world? We'll show you. Mm. I think that was the same vibe with crew crew supporters being like, oh, you think you're tough? We'll let you know. Yeah, and I'm not and, and, sure how that played out for them. No, no, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like it played mm-hmm. out particularly well for them. Um, on a similar kind of vibe, I think the most infamous example of hooliganism in, in MLS was in 2015, and I remember this because I'm not going to lie, I found it a bit funny. But it was a match between NYCFC and the Red Bulls. I remember videos of it going around social media because it was very much of the sort of like "hold me back, hold me back" violence, yeah. and and my impression was that. Because this was a new rivalry, this is what people thought rival fans do. So they they better live up to the stereotype. It felt a little bit like full hooliganism to me. But there was some police involvement yep. and some punches were thrown. So I guess that's not great. And who am I to determine what is full hooliganism and what is just actually like violence and hooliganism? I think the games, the Major League Soccer games where I've seen the most violence such as it is from fan groups would be LA and El Trafico. Uh, but even there, I don't think it's it's nearly as widespread as pervasive. 
I, I think with American sport, you get drunken fights, but on yeah. a more individual case-by-case basis. And you certainly have violence and even murder at, uh, in American sports when fans get into it after uh, way too much alcohol. But but nothing to the organization and spectacle that you will get and the fighting in the streets and the scheduling times to meet up and fight in a park that you might get in in other parts of the world. I certainly don't think it exists to that degree and to some extent it creates i think because of that a little bit of like myth making like you see it in a lot of the the movies i think that have at least a little bit of an impact over here there's more there's uh green street hooligans and football factory to some extent it feels like it's more even the euro trip has the thing where vinnie jones is a manchester united ultra and i think it's a little bit more like you're fighting for your friends. It's all about respect. It's all about like having each other's back. It's all about having a good time. Like I think it gets a little bit more glorified over here because we are removed from it. I think yeah. when you experience like my limited experience is being in Turkey and recognizing that there's certain areas of the city that you don't wear certain jerseys through or you're going to hear about it at best. Like I think that removes a lot of the mystique because it is ultimately a very nerve-wracking thing when you are like being sort of ferried from like literally a a, a boat uh, to the stadium along one tight road where you are surrounded by uh, very angry opposition fans, it does feel pretty scary pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I think because of the media portrayal, some people think hooliganism is uh is like a sign of authenticity. Yeah. In football, which is crazy because in my opinion, most football hooligans aren't actually interested in the football. They are distinctly inauthentic to me mm-hmm. but that's the way that it's it's portrayed they're proper yeah. fans it's life or death for them quite literally um sometimes and so i do think the media portrayal has played a, a role yeah. in um kind of the comeback of, of of football hooliganism in 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 the last few years or the last 10 years or whatever i would agree with that and then i would add one more thing that <laughs> is is pretty polarizing from the what Every video I saw, every article I read that mentioned politics would immediately be a like, well, there's left wing ultra groups and and I don't know how po- political it is, but I do feel like there's a pretty uh, oftentimes a strict correlation or a pretty direct correlation between violent uh, hooligan groups and the far right. Uh, again, with certain exceptions, but like Graham, the situations you outlined that oftentimes on a societal level lead to hooligan uh incidents and violence usually also lead to the growth of far-right extremes when you have uh economic um sort of stagnation and also stratification at the same time when there's a feeling of injustice when there's a feeling that the government isn't representing you or is overly representing other groups at your expense i think that oftentimes leads to the growth of far-right political movements and i think we've seen that happen in those movements co-opting certain fan sections of fan bases or outright drawing uh, support to them or drawing connections to them. Beitar Jerusalem is a very famous example of that, where the, they are basically the football club of the Likud party, of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's party. Uh, they, I believe, still have the uh, n- like Arabs are not allowed to play for them policy. So there are clubs that I think have more of that connection and their fan groups then have that sort of background to them. But I look at, I mean, painting with a broad brush, I hope I don't interact with any Chelsea headhunters anytime soon. But if I do, then there's other issues at stake. But like, I'm guessing that you're getting a lot of Brexit voters in there. I'm guessing you're getting maybe 
uh, people with more far right extreme opinions and then uh, with certain groups, racism as well and concerns about the identity of the country or, or what have you. I do think all of those factor into modern hooliganism and perhaps hooliganism of the past as well. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. That's certainly a trend in in, in modern times. Um, a correlation between a lot of the hooligan groups and 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 the far right. I am interested, Taylor. You mentioned you mentioned Turkey there fleetingly. Mm-hmm. What what is your kind of? I was going to ask what's your experience with Turkish hooliganism, as if you were part of mm-hmm. uh, of a forum in Turkey. But is is it like a, a prevalent part of yeah. of of Turkish football? Yes, a hundred percent. I I mean I I think <laughs> like. So a, a casual observation uh, that I was alluded to earlier, Fenerbahce, I think I've talked about this before, but Fenerbahce on the Asian side, Galatasaray, Besiktas on the European side, Besiktas's old stadium, which I believe is now their new stadium, uh, is right on the Bosphorus. So you can uh, take a train, uh, 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 boat from Fetikoy, which is like the station closest to the Marine Terminal closest to Fenerbahce Stadium, over to where Besiktas is located. Uh, and so it does feel like there's an invading army coming across because the Fener fans are setting off yellow and blue flares and they have flags streaming but when they land at this dock you then have to walk along this one road to get to the stadium and i remember being there just to observe it because i had heard it was kind of a spectacle and seeing many many groups of teenagers into their 20s drinking and then just hurling bottles uh from an elevated position down into those supporters you could see little like little fights breaking out here and there there was a really really strong police presence and that is for clubs that historically hate each other but you would get that in other parts of the city as well where there were smaller clubs in istanbul Uh, as i said you don't don't wear a Galatasaray jersey here. You don't wear a Besiktas jersey there. Besiktas were more ubiquitous, I would say. They were more sort of accepted in more areas. But you definitely would get a vibe of, like, there is... Violence is not going to be, like, fully tamped down. It's also not fully encouraged. But violence could happen in certain areas is a vibe that I got. Again, it's about being safe and smart and being aware of yeah. your surroundings. I It never felt like... like my wife would go go, go with me to... um to Galatasaray games and to Turkey games, and we never had any any issues or anything like that. So it's not lurking around every corner, but at the same time, I think if you are going there expecting it to be a fun sporting day, you could be in for a rude awakening if you're not uh, head on a swivel. Yeah, and in my research for this, there were a few countries that, that came up as... Um, places where hooliganism would be more prevalent. Mm-hmm. Turkey was one of them, so yep. I was going to ask you, uh, you know, I've asked you about that. England, of course, we've spoken about England. Croatia seems to have quite a rich history with yeah. hooliganism. I found countless examples of violence, of fans throwing flares and fighting with, weirdly, a lot of incidents involving Italian teams and mm-hmm. Croatian teams. You had a Euro 2016 qualifier between Italy and Croatia suspended due to flares being thrown on the pitch. And then last August, uh, tragically, uh, AEK, AEK Athens, easy for me to say, fan, was stabbed to death um, following fighting between AEK fans and Dinamo Zagreb fans. So um, Croatia seems to be a bit of a hotbed. I found a, a good number of examples of um, Serbian fans being involved in hooliganism you also have the the barra brava culture in argentina mm-hmm. which yep. is which is what it's called which still exists to this day um and then i mentioned russia earlier but they have a real organization behind their hooliganism movement so i think you could you could kind of throw a dart at a map and you would find 
yep. football hooliganism because hooliganism exists really wherever football is and football is everywhere around the world. But you do tend to have some countries where it's it's um, a little bit more prevalent, mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, it's bigger. It plays a bigger role in football in those countries. True. I think like uh, advances in technology and in policing probably limit the way it used to exist, but then you just have more organization online and, and more sort of encrypted messaging and the like. So I think with each development, there are then the drawbacks that come with them. So it seems like a thing that will be here, ideally less prevalent than it was in, say, the 1980s. But Graham Ruthven, thank you for talking about a a difficult topic, a not always fun topic, but a fascinating topic all the same with me today. Thank you. Taylor Rockwell, can I take this balaclava off now? You can now. It seems like it oh, maybe must have been stifling in the in the uh, the blanket for it to also record yeah. with balaclava. I appreciate your dedication. We uh, appreciate you, listeners, continuing to listen and support the show. Thanks so much. Tell a friend, and we'll talk to you next week. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.